0: Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vasim Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Nicholas Humphrey, Emeritus Professor of Psychology at the London School of Economics. He is a theoretical psychologist based in Cambridge who studies the evolution of intelligence and consciousness. Today we are going to discuss his new book, Sentience, The Invention of Consciousness. Nick, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to Bridging the Gaps.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Nick, let us set the scene for our listeners. Why, in your view, it is difficult to understand how consciousness emerges? And perhaps, uh, what is consciousness, and how should we describe and define it? It's
1: difficult to understand what consciousness is. That's, I think, the problem. Um, Once we can settle on that, then I think uh, the problem of explaining how it has evolved will be much easier but it's in, it's been for hundreds of years now impossible to get people to agree about what it is we're talking about um and of course that's been part of my own evolution I've changed my mind at various points but I think I've now homed in on a particular definition of consciousness which is the one which I think uh we we all in the end uh, are concerned with and that's um By consciousness, I mean the inner experience of sensations, the magical quality of phenomenal experience. Phenomenal experience is a term philosophers now use, but we all know what it it means. It means the quality of redness, the quality of sweetness, the quality of pain, Um, something which is puzzling because it seems to transcend the physical world. It's made, of course, by our brains, at least that's my assumption, and yet Um, The actual, what the the brain is delivering is an experience which can't easily be mapped on to anything which we can understand at the level of brain activity. And that's the problem. It's now, it's been tossed around for many years now, but increasingly people now home in, in on it as the hard problem of consciousness. Hard because there seems to be an explanatory gap a gap between what we know is happening in the brain and what we know is occurring at the level of individual experience.
0: And this is the gap. And understanding this gap is the challenge.
1: Yes, absolutely. And to, to, we have, to, and I think it's that's where a lot of people, are, I think, are, are continue to be very confused about it because I've come around to the view that the gap isn't the one which people have always assumed it to be. For a long time, people have assumed there's a mind-brain identity. Now that seems to make sense. You know, the brain is producing the, the mind in, in in all of us and in other animals, presumably as well. But so we philosophers assume quite naturally that in that case we ought to be able to find the neural correlates of consciousness, the nerve activity which is under which delivers. Conscious experience, and then they come up with all sorts of bizarre theories of how, in fact, a physical process could have qualitative properties of the kind philosophers call qualia, to go back to it, the paininess of pain, the redness of red. Now, the mistake, I think, is to assume that there is literally is an identity there what when we experience sensations. Um, what, what, in whatever modality it may be, they are always re- representations. They're ideas that our brain has come up with, a way of thinking and looking at the world, which comes across to us as having these properties. But it's a representation in the way, same way as you know, a work of art can be a representation of something which it really isn't. Um, the work of art has, can have qualities which aren't present in the medium of the painting, for example. And it's just the same way our experience can have properties, which aren't actually present in the vehicle of the representation. Philosophers talk about representations as having a vehicle, the hard substance, which underlies it. And then what's represented, which is the interpretation of the the vehicle. Um, And once you begin to see that the problem of understanding phenomenal consciousness is discovering how it is that the brain could come up with Something which we interpret as having these strange qualities, it becomes a much easier issue. I'll give you an analogy. Um, it's an easier case for perhaps to talk about representation. A novel is a representation of the content of the story. Let's say, take Moby Dick. Moby Dick is a is a is a novel about a white whale. Um, it comes. It, the vehicle for the book is a text with words on it. Now we are presented by the author with this text, and then we interpret that text in terms of a story about a white whale. But the text hasn't got anything white or whale-like in it. It's all in the interpretation. And in just the same way, when I see redness, for example, as I see a red tomato, my brain is coming up with a kind of text which is the way it represents the quality of redness. But the text itself in the brain, the neural activity, won't be phenomenally read. Um, that lies in my the way I read it, the way I interpret it, which is a cognitive operation. Um, and increase, increasingly, I mean, it continues to amaze me, philosophers and followed by cognitive scientists have been trying to come up with the most elaborate theories about how the brain could have Phenomenal qualities in itself. There's a, a not a relatively new theory called integrated information information theory. Um, it's very fashionable now, and Christoph Koch, one of Tononi, they're both uh, major proponents of this idea. They are proud to say that they have identified properties in the way information is being handled in the brain, which are identical with phenomenal qualities of experience. Um, I mean it doesn't it doesn't work, but it's the wrong idea anyway. That's not what they should have been looking for. They should have been looking for a process in the brain which is then interpreted as the idea of redness, penness, or whatever it may be and the reason for saying this must be the answer in the end is because all we know about these qualities are the things we say and think about them. um Why should I believe there's any such thing as phenomenal? redness, the conscious experience of these sensations. I believe it because you say you have them. You can tell me about them. You say how wonderful they are and how extraordinary, and in fact, how mystifying and difficult to explain. I know I have them because um, I find myself... Uh, describing them and speaking the words. They change my behavior in all sorts of ways. They lead me to doing philosophy. I've spent most of my, my, my life trying to understand phenomenal consciousness. So they're very, uh, these ideas are very powerful, but they're ideas. And the ideas are being derived from this experience, which in the end is nothing other than a representation, um, a cognitive representation. Now, I say nothing other, it, it's a very extraordinary. Representation. Um, I, I mean, that's what we've got to try to understand to how the brain could achieve this feat of representation. I mean, I, we give—I gave the analogy of a novelist writing a text which has this effect on on readers, but—and that's small beer compared with the wealth of—I mean, the pure, pure creativity and richness of phenomenal consciousness. <clears throat> so we've got a big, a big problem scientific research program ahead but we've got to understand what that program is it's how does the brain represent these qualities not how can the brain have these qualities
0: in the book you discuss uh, the concepts of cognitive consciousness and phenomenal consciousness and you have Mm -hmm. just mentioned these terms while addressing the previous question. But I think there is a need to dig deep on these two concepts and yes. then differentiate these two concepts because this will then lead us to your concept of sentience. So let us focus on what is cognitive consciousness and what is phenomenal consciousness.
1: Yes, good. Um, well, it's a very important distinction to make. And it's. Um, I should, as a preamble, I should say that those terms have been used by a philosopher, Ned Bloch, um, in ways which I think are thoroughly misleading and unhelpful. So when I say phenomenal consciousness and cognitive consciousness, I don't mean it in the sense which Ned Block does. What I mean, when by cognitive consciousness, I'm taking the basic age-old understanding of consciousness, which is um, it's a way we handle information in our mind, our brain. And we say things are information is co- states of mind are conscious when we have access to them. We know we have them. Um, what's out of consciousness are, are, are properties of our mind, which in fact aren't available to us as the subject. I'm conscious of my thoughts, my feelings, my sensations, my decisions, my judgments, because they are all present in what has now been called the global workspace of consciousness. Uh, I, as the subject, have a view of a certain range of. The mental states which are occurring in, in my brain, um, and it's a very efficient way to handle information. Um, increasingly, we're having to mimic this kind of design, this structural into into machines. For example, um, you know, you, a, a global workspace is a good idea. You select, or well, the brain selects, what aspects of the mind's activity to bring to the table, and then they can be uh, interacted with and and, and uh, correlated and so on. Um, now. Uh, that's all. you necessary in defining cognitive consciousness. I haven't said anything about what it feels like, about sentience. It doesn't get a look in. It doesn't get mentioned. This is a way of computing, a form of highly sophisticated form of, integ- of information computing. Now, that's. It's very important, I think, to set this out as a computing operation because I think it is. You know, it's something we already know how we c- could emulate, and we can emulate it in, in, in a hard uh, artificial intelligence system. But I'm going to surprise your listeners, I think, by saying, I think this is primitive. I think this is where consciousness began before it had this other dimension. Um, I think that. Cognitive consciousness, is a way to handle information, goes right the way down. I mean, not down to earthworms, but probably down to honeybees and octopuses and so on. So they, I'm quite, I should say, I'm prepared to conceive. Why should I say that? I'm happy to say that that level of consciousness, I think, is very widespread in the animal kingdom. And when people like, you know, Lars Chitka with his bees and so on, insists on that they're conscious, I agree. I think that they probably are in this sense. Um, If he wants to say they're sentient, then I have to say I disagree. I think there's nothing in what you've shown me or what you might show me about their ability to handle information, their intelligence, their problem-solving capacities or so on, which speaks to me of sentience. Sentience is something different. Sentience is this glorious feeling we have, magical, mysterious, you know, I I I am taken to task for calling it magical as if that somehow uh, means it's out you know it's not real it's it's real enough but these are thoroughly uh, uh um, I mean they the, the properties of consciousness continually amaze us and they amaze us partly because they're so beautiful and extraordinary and rich but also because we come back to this problem that in a way they are magical they don't seem to be able. They, we can't. It's not at all easy to derive them from the activity of the brain. So we have cognitive consciousness. Okay, all these ideas milling around and how and how they're put together. mean, that that's an easy problem. We we really know how to solve that one. And then, in my view, later in evolution, some of these states of mind, specifically sensations, acquired a new dimension, this phenomenal dimension. They were, sensations remain part of cognitive consciousness we know we have them um but now we know we have something which has this extra quality to it this extra dimension and that is what i think is that's the hard problem It's really what everybody is after when they talk about whether animals are conscious or machines are conscious they you know the fact is we were impressed by cognitive consciousness but it doesn't uh, amaze us. <clears throat> well, it, maybe it does. I mean, chat GBT, uh is beginning to amaze us in various ways, but it, it doesn't amaze us in the way it would if chat GBT suddenly persuaded us that it was feeling pain, or or, or was or was seeing red, or or tasting a wine, for example.
0: Just uh, staying with the same question for a few more moments. So, cognitive consciousness—you just explained that—and then phenomenal consciousness. But is phenomenal consciousness? exactly the concept of sentience that you present, or yes. is there a difference between these two?
1: No, I think it's the same. I mean, sentience, i recently looked up the statistics for the word sentience to see how it's been used. It was quite popular around 1800, and then it completely went out of use until about 1950 or so. And in the last 50 years, it's increased 500 times in in, in incidents in Google Books. They have these wonderful statistics you can access. So the word sentience is suddenly on everybody's lips. And people are asking in a way they haven't done for certainly 200 years, whether plants are sentient, whether machines are sentient, whether all animals are sentient, whether the, the, the universe is sentient. I mean, so there's, there's almost nothing which isn't now being uh, uh, attributed the qualities of phenomenal consciousness. Because when people like Philip Goff, for example, a philosopher who is making a name for reviving the idea of panpsychism, when he says you know, that, that, that the basic matter of the universe is is conscious, it's interesting. He goes on in his book, his popular book about panpsychism, it gives it away. The second part of the book is concerned about what does this mean ethically? So he's clearly what he's concerned with is the possibility that a teacup or whatever it might be is actually having experiences which would matter to it, and therefore might matter to us. In other words, he's talking about sensations, phenomenal sensations. So um, it's uh, sentience is is I think uh, coextensive with these days with with phenomenal consciousness, um, and uh, it's, it's quite clear that you know. People use it because it's a, a, an easy, familiar term, and it chips off your tongue, and and, and that's why it's so easy to ask our lobsters sentient, for example. You ask our lobsters phenomenally conscious. Not many people would understand that, but you know, Jonathan Birch, a, a colleague of mine at the LSE, has written a report for the government, uh, in which he concludes that decapod crustaceans—that's crabs and and lobsters—and cephalopods—that's squid and, lobsters, and cephalopods, that's and octopuses, they are sentient. He thinks he's managed to find evidence that they are sentient and he's persuaded the government to make them legally sentient. So now we have animals being sentient by law. Um, and of, of course, that, that has important implications for practice, as it should do, because if lobsters are sentient, there are ways we shouldn't. And and perhaps treat them in a way we can treat them if they're merely cognitively conscious, but don't really feel things in the way we do. I mean, you know, it's now or soon will be illegal to drop a lobster, a live lobster into boiling water. Why does, why would, might that be wrong? Because the lobster might feel pain like we do. It might have phenomenal consciousness of pain. Um, if, like me, you think that a lobster is no more sentient than an alarm clock, um, then I think it's no more eth- in eth- uneth- unethical to drop a lobster into boiling water than it would be to drop an alarm clock into boiling water. Now, I've been in trouble for saying that, and I can see why, but I, mean, I'm, I want to push the point. I, uh, animals and machines, for that matter, either have phenomenal consciousness or they don't. Uh, it's certainly by the analysis I've developed, my evolutionary theory of it, it's a pretty much all or nothing phenomenon. You can't, uh, even my great friend, Dan Dennett, who I have worked with for many, many years, he continually likes to hedge his bets. He's quite good at not offending people. Well, he does offend people, but he likes to talk about consciousness all the way down and, you know, hemi, demi, semi states of consciousness. So, So that we, you know, every he'll grant that earthworms might be phenomenally conscious, Um, but I just think that's that's intellectually cowardly. There's no reason to think they are. There's no reason to think they have the brain mechanisms which are required for it. There's no reason to think that earthworms would benefit from being phenomenally conscious, and that brings me to a very point, important point, which is I continually come back to the question of what is phenomenal consciousness for. We know what cognitive consciousness is for it, and it makes you think better. Um, It makes you act more sensibly, more rationally in the world, um, and obviously it has a payoff. You can see why it would have evolved. When it comes to phenomenal consciousness, it's not so clear. Um, And that's been a big puzzle for many philosophers, because they kind of see it as just a kind of decoration. You know, they're glad they have it. They have it. I mean, who would not want to be phenomenally conscious, and yet... It's hard to put your finger on quite what the payoff is. Um, And so uh, David Chalmers and others have raised the possibility of zombies, consciousness zombies, animals which resemble human beings in all possible ways, are just as clever as we are, talk the same way we do, claim that they're conscious in the same way we do, but they're not actually. They don't have... The light isn't on inside. They're not experiencing this qualitative dimension of sensations. They're just very good at pretending they are. Now, uh, that's of course uh, it's, it's a fascinating possibility. If it was a scientific possibility, we'd have to we'd, we might have to do something about it. But since um, I'm maintaining that phenomenal consciousness has a physical basis, if it was present in an animal, which cared to have it, it would be uh, having the same consequences for that animal as it does for us, and therefore it would be being felt. And so you can't, the idea of a, a empty, a mind which is empty, a brain which is identical to ours in every way, but which isn't experiencing con- phenomenal consciousness, simply is incoherent.
0: This nicely brings us to my next question. So you suggest In the book and in your other publications, that consciousness evolved as an evolutionary process. So this is what I want you to explain us. And before you do this, I want you to start with this little side question that the name of the book is uh, Sentience, the invention of consciousness. So this second part of the title of the book, are you suggesting that the nature invented this phenomenal consciousness?
1: I'm using it in two ways. Um, yes, nature invented phenomenal consciousness. Um, natural selection invented it, just in the way natural selection invented digestion and 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 and, uh, and, and indigestion and uh, uh, and you know, all the phenomena of nature we're familiar with, which are species characteristics. Um, I use it also in the sense that. Uh, of invention rather like a musical invention. Uh, Artists have often talked about inventions and particularly uh, it's been used in in, in musical terminology about playing around with, experimenting, building on and creating fantasies on the back of a tune, for example. Um, And the enigma variations are inventions. Um, And so I use it for that as well, because I think Consciousness has that artistic quality to it. Um, I think it it does entertain us um, and surprise us in ways which are part of the reason we have it. I didn't continue about that yet, but of course I have to, according to evolutionary theory, I have to propose a function for consciousness, an evolutionary function. And one of the functions, it's not the most basic one, what I think is to make us feel great, to make us feel good about ourselves, to make us think, gosh, there's something special about me. I'm I'm the author of this extraordinary world I live in. Um I'm, you know, where's it come from? It's come from me. Um and so every time I go for a walk and enjoy the bird song or the or the colors of the rainbow or whatever it may be, I'm continually thrown back on this extraordinary sense sense of. Gosh, and I did this. Now, most people, of course, are not so self-aware as I'm suggesting they might be. But nonetheless, I think we all enjoy consciousness, and it boosts our sense of self. It makes us think of ourselves as being very remarkable creatures. Um, it's a uh, if, if consciousness, even for philosophy, is an enigma, which it is, it's our enigma. It's our enigma, and we are well the living example of this enigma, and that's pretty good. Um, now, I'm talking, of course, about human beings here, who I think uh, relish consciousness at that level. Humans are connoisseurs of consciousness, and we might talk later about the way that's taken us into extraordinary uh, cultural uh, innovations, of, I mean, building on phenomenal consciousness of of leading to spirituality and ideas about the soul and so on. But that's come relatively late. I think the 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 original basic function of consciousness was simply to give us a new sense of self, a new sense of what it is to be me. Um, I am the subject of these sensations, which my life is a continual stream of these sensations. They're mine. I know about them in no way no one else does. I don't even know if other people have the same sensations that I do, but I know that I do, and I know that this this is what it's like to be me. That's a discovery every child makes. Uh, It spends the first few months of its life discovering exactly what it is to be me, playing with everything it can, experimenting with its eyes and ears and mouth and so on to discover uh, the the range, full range of sensory experience, which gives it this phenomenal self. And on the back of that, this idea, that's me, that makes a very important, The child makes a very important leap of imagination, which is that if that's what it's like to be me, then that's what probably what it's like to be you. I feel, therefore I am. You feel, therefore you are too. And that means that phenomenal consciousness opens up the social world in a way which is tremendously significant. It gives, we not only makes us feel good about ourselves and respect ourselves and value ourselves, but we transfer that value to other human beings. And of course, to other animals sometimes as well. And so um, uh, I think that phenomenal consciousness, the phenomenal self is our ticket. To living in what I've called the society of selves, of other selves like like us. And that's hugely important, not just because it's you know it's good to be in that company, but once we think of other creatures like ourselves as having minds like our own, of having their own inner life, dominated by sensations of having all these feelings, having this sense of their importance, having the sense that you know maybe these are. uh, uh, this consciousness is going to accompany me, not only in this life, out into another life maybe. Um, That gives us a way of entering into the psychology of other individuals. Now, human beings, I've long argued, are psychologists before they're anything else. They are natural psychologists. That's where the real intelligence of our mind lies. And it's what distinguishes us from most other animals in nature. Of course, there are other primates like like us and other mammals like dogs who also have that kind of social relationship and are also quite good psychologists. But um, this sense of, uh, of, of, I mean, this need to be a psychologist, I think is uh, is the, the crucial development Um, in the history of our species. And it is built on phenomenal consciousness because the way we do it, how do we do psychology? We don't do it by going to university and learning to to get a degree in psychology. We don't even do it by going to clinical school and learning psychotherapy. We learn it by continually putting ourselves in the place of other people. And we go and start doing that at the age of two months and we go on doing it better and better till the age of 90. We practice it, we, we revel in it. We go to all sorts of ingenious uh, uh, routes into the minds of other people. We read novels about them. We watch movies and so on. We dream about being other people. We spend a great deal of time practicing being other people. Um, by, by, when we do that, by extending our understanding of what it's like to be ourselves. So that's uh, what becomes a really important factor. Because I attribute to you a mind like my own, I can begin to get a handle on how you're likely to behave. Um, Now, I can use that in all sorts of self-promoting ways. I can manipulate you, I can deceive you, and so on. I can love you and take care of you in ways which I wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And that becomes one of my hallmarks for looking for phenomenal consciousness. If, if you need to need phenomenal consciousness to be a psychologist, uh, uh, and, if you need, uh, and you only have that if you're sentient, then one of the markers of sentience may very well be evidence of animals attributing minds to other creatures like themselves. Now, psychologists recently have talked a lot about theory of mind. Um, and they ask whether other they say humans, of course, acquire a theory of mind um, early in their life. That's what I mean by saying we learn how to interpret minds on the basis of what it's like to be our, ourselves. Um, there's a lot of discussion quite how far this does extend in the animal kingdom. But we know one thing for sure, frogs don't have it. Um, <laughs> Uh, there's no, frogs don't need to be psychologists, uh, fish we don't think have it, octopuses don't have it. I mean, octopuses are very, very ingenious and clever. There's never been any evidence that an octopus can enter into the mind of another octopus. Um, and in fact, if it could, I I don't think it would benefit it because octopuses are not social creatures. Um, It's a remarkable. I mean, most people don't really appreciate that, particularly because they watch what brilliant Disney movies about octopuses. Well, not. I'm sorry, I shouldn't call it Disney, but you know, brilliant PBS movies like My Octopus Teacher, whose message seems to be that here's a human making friends with an octopus, and an octopus making friends with a human, and them getting on each other's wavelength at the level of understanding. That's that's baloney. It's a, you know this is this this it's a fantasy, and it's been cleverly created in the cutting room of making that film. I mean, it is a brilliant documentary, but it's not science.
0: Fascinating stuff. You you, you have touched upon very interesting concepts while answering the previous question. Now, I just want to step back for one second. If evolution created this phenomenal consciousness to give us a sense of self. And to have good time, then, then it could be just an illusion, also, just simply an illusion. Well, I don't, it's not simply an illusion. I mean, it's, um,
1: I, I, I think the feelings we have, the properties we attribute to what it's like to be in the presence of sensations are real. That's what it's like. Um, you know, it, there's no, I'm, I'm not making a mistake in saying that I'm having these magical experiences. And this has become one of my chief points of, of contest with Daniel Dennett, for example. I mean, I was partly responsible for what's now called illusionism. The idea that that, that phenomenal experiences are illusions. Um, it's partly because I came up with a rather nice analogy. Um, I said, maybe being conscious, having phenomenal experience is like looking at the real impossible triangle. The impossible triangle, you will probably all know it, it's Penrose triangle sometimes called it, but Richard Gregory invented a real object, a piece, a thing made out of wood, which if you look at it just from the right position, appears to be an impossible triangle. And I said, well, maybe that's just what the brain is doing when it gives us phenomenal experience. It's creating something which, if we look at it from just the right, position will appear to be something which it isn't. But that was, I think, my mistake to say, which it isn't, because it is. Um, These phenomenal experiences are, I think, real. And I don't see any reason to try and uh, demote them by calling them uh, illusions. Partly it's politically a bad idea because people will think you don't understand what consciousness is. <laughs> um, I mean, Dennett continually receives stick for saying, you know, if he thinks consciousness is an illusion, he clearly isn't conscious. Um, he can't, how could he say that this, this which is what we live for, uh, you know, is what we spend our time raising, consciousness raising experiences, uh, going to the opera or, or, or bathing naked in the, in, in, in a mountain stream or whatever it may be, the, these are not illusory experiences. They are experience, and I think that's the right way to look at it. Um, and so uh, I have parted company with with the They Dan's hardly forgiving me yet. He keeps on saying, "Well, you're really an illusionist, aren't you?" We don't really disagree, um, but I think we, I think I think I'm, I'm slowly bringing him round. Um, he would say he's bringing me around but anyway it's uh, to answer your question uh, how can this all be an illusion I think it's not um, and I think it's it would be a mistake to describe it as such I mean it's because an illusion is a mistake
0: if evolution created phenomenal consciousness our ancestors had cognitive consciousness and then we evolved many animals evolve in different ways and why so far we know that only humans have this type of consciousness that we can experience, feel and, 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 and relate to. Is there a particular threshold? Is there number of neurons? Is there structure of brain, size of brain? Anything that tells us that what is the boundary where from Cognitive consciousness—you move into the realm of phenomenal consciousness. Yes,
1: absolutely essential question, and I shouldn't give the impression, if I have that, I think it's only humans that have it. I don't. I think it's it's present in many animals besides human beings. But um, I, what I don't think is that it totally emerges with life or mind as a kind of natural follow-on, or for that matter, that if we make machines more and more intelligent, it will just emerge as. A phenomenon, um, a kind of uh, uh, unexpected add-on. I think phenomenal consciousness had a function. It, uh, it, and it came about relatively recently in evolution. I think it depended on two conditions being present. I mean, I've developed a particular model of it, by the way. I mean, a, a neurophysiological model of how, in fact, this kind of experience could be could be generated. How rep- how we could our brains could have come around to representing something that's going on when we sense uh, sense colours and smells and sounds and so on in this way. So I have a, a theory of it. It's probably not worth going into detail. It involves um, it involves a certain amount of mathematical trickiness. I think it it depends on the generation of. Attractor states in the brain through feedback loops, which can have very strange and wonderful properties. But I I won't insist on that. But I think it's a model which works. Um, But if it's right, it means firstly two things. It it requires a fairly sophisticated brain, a brain which is capable of generating the kind of feedback loops which are responsible for it in us and all other animals which are sentient. So they have to have the right kind of brain. Secondly, they have to have the right kind of lifestyle to require it. It won't have happened just by chance. I mean, major changes in the organization of the brain don't just come out of nothing. They're there because natural selection discovered benefit in it. And so there must have been some benefit in raising the game, in raising uh, sensations into this new realm of phenomenal phenomenal sensations. And so I look for that as a marker too, evidence that the animal's life would have been improved by it. Um, And uh, I argue that uh, it does depend on social life. It's consciousness is is a property of beings which take other individuals like themselves seriously. Uh, interact with the mind about them, and try, try and predict their behavior um, in ways which require psychological insight. Um, and it's going to be present only in animals which have sufficiently highly developed brain. Now what about the brain? I, I, in, in my book, I write quite a lot about it. What a very important experience in my life, which was a, an experiment I got involved with involving a monkey, which was called Helen. Um, when I was a young research student, 22 years old, um, I started doing a PhD in Cambridge uh, with Larry Wisecrumbs, as my um, professor. He was working on the effects of damaging the visual cortex in monkeys. Um, and what he was doing was to remove the visual cortex at the back of the brain of monkeys and see what effect it had on their behavior. Well, will it's not surprise you to know that it had a rather major effect. It rendered them apparently blind. If you don't have a visual cortex in your monkey, it seems—at least it did seem—that you can't see anymore. Um, what I was—I was working in that lab. I wasn't working directly on this problem, but I something puzzled me. Um, without the visual cortex, a monkey still has the midbrain visual system. Mammals have two visual systems, an ancient one, which is the visual system of frogs and, and reptiles and, and, and fishes and so on, which is in the midbrain, it's sometimes called tectum. And then later, they developed a, visual, a cortex and a separate line went from the eye directly to the cortex to develop the cortical visual system. Now, Helen's cortical visual system had been taken away. But she still had the visual system of a frog. Okay, frogs can see in their own way, but perfectly well uh, with just the midbrain system. So my puzzle was: if Helen has this, why can't she see at least like a frog? Um, Is it because something? It seems to her that something's changed so dramatically that she still doesn't doesn't count it as seeing. Um, so I decided, look, look, a bit of therapy is needed with this monkey. Um, I'm going to try and persuade her that she can see after all. Um, and so when Larry Weiss was away at a conference, uh, I took the chance to play, sit down and play with his monkey for a, a few days, stretch to a week or so. Um, and lo and behold, it was obvious within a few hours that she could see much more than she was meant to. Um, within a few days, I had her reaching out to take bits of apple from my hand and, and to touch, reach out and touch a flashing light. Seven years later, I went on working with this monkey. Helen could run around a room full of obstacles, picking up peanuts from the floor um, as if she was had vision just like any normal monkey. In fact, people who saw her uh, assumed that she did have normal vision. This is a monkey without any visual cortex. So. The question was, did she really ha- have normal vision? Um, the New Scientist published an article of mine. Well, they, they titled it on the front cover. They said, a blind monkey that can see everything. I didn't think that was probably the right way to describe it. And in the body of the magazine, my article was called Seeing and Nothings. And I argued that actually Helen's sight was missing something I wasn't quite sure what it was, but I had a hunch i didn't believe I didn't think that she believed that she could see she could only see, provided she didn't have to think about it too hard, if she was worried or upset, for example, um she'd stumble around as if she was in the dark again, so Helen could see, but only provided she didn't have to. Consider whether she could see or not, um and so I suggested well, this is perhaps a kind of unconscious vision. Um, this was a monkey we couldn't actually ask her uh, what's going on there, but Weisskrantz, uh obviously encouraged by this work with Helen um, he decided to take a different line with human patients, and he was the first to take the to make the uh, clever move of saying to a patient, yes, we know you, there's nothing there. It doesn't feel like anything. You can't see. I know you're blind in that half of your physical field because you've had damage to that side of your cortex. But uh, forgive me for asking this. I mean, supposing you could see, supposing you could guess what you were seeing, what would you be seeing now? Where's the light I'm just showing you? And the patient, some of them reacted by saying, doctor, you're having me on. Don't, Don't be silly. Don't tease me like that. But... Uh, the, the patient, if and when he took part, would say, "Yes, it's, I, I think I know where the light is. I think I know it's a square. I think I know it's coloured red, but I can't see it." And what was, Wescott currents called this blind sight, yeah, visual perception without conscious sensation. And what's really interesting about it, from what I take from what the patients say, is they say this seeing has nothing to do with them. They don't own it. It doesn't seem to belong to their self. It's somebody's seeing, but it's not me. Now, that's, of course, one of the clues I got to thinking that the phenomenal consciousness is essential to grounding the sense of self. You might think it's, okay, are they then cognitively conscious of seeing, even if they're not phenomenally conscious? It's become a very interesting and significant question. To begin with, there are now many cases of blind sight. People accept it. This is vision, unconscious vision. It's certainly vision without sensation. There's nothing it's like at that level to, 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 to have visual perception. But one or two of the patients began, after many years of blind sight, to make making some surprising uh, claims. Well, yes, uh, I actually am I'm aware there's something out there. I'm wait, I, I I know what it is. I'm not seeing it. It's not like vision. Don't 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 make, think I'm going back on that. This doesn't feel like anything. Nonetheless, I am aware of having this information. I've always assumed it's rather like telepathy. It must be when you're trying, like when you're trying to guess the Xeno cards, which one is it? Um, and you or you you just have the sense that you know what the card is, even though you don't have any phenomenal experience accompanying it. Anyhow, so now there's been the big emphasis on trying to revive the idea that blindsight actually is conscious at some level. Um, and when I went back and looked at Helen, I've recently done that with some of the films I've got of her. I realized that all along I had evidence that by the end of it, end anyway, she clearly did know what she was seeing. Um, for example, uh, she wouldn't reach for something if it was out of sight, if sorry, out of reach. She would look at I had set her sitting in a tree, for example, and I'd hold out something for her to reach to. If it was within reach, she reached. If it wasn't, she didn't. She seemed to know when she could do it, and when she couldn't. Or you'll see her in the films. If uh, I've got some of this online, you'll see her wondering which direction to take, and looking this way and that way, and clearly weighing possibilities up in her mind about which way to go. She is clearly conscious of what information she has. Um, so I think things are coming together in a way. I think um, this the blind sight, which was my original reason for my reason for separating off phenomenal consciousness from cognitive consciousness um, is now it makes even more sense because I think there is evidence that while phenomenal consciousness, visual consciousness is absent, cognitive consciousness is still present in some way. Um, there have recently been papers written, I saw one just a month or so ago, saying, okay, sight isn't on conscious vision. Forget all the. F- all the fuss we've made about it. It's not even very interesting. It doesn't tell us anything philosophically interesting anymore. It's just degraded vision, which seems sort of, sort of conscious. But I think people are totally missing the point. Blindsight is a remarkable phenomenon, um, and it points to a remarkable uh, division of labor in our minds between cognitive consciousness and phenomenal awareness.
0: <clears throat> On one level, uh, Nick, I'm very happy because these were my two follow-up questions this is the way I had planned this, so naturally you have answered those two questions. It seems that you are trying to suggest that if somebody can naturally see, there is an element of sensation there, when you can consciously see and if you, for some reason, damaged brain are due to any reason, if you are using uh, this uh, blind sight, then sensation is missing. Am I correct in saying that?
1: Yes. yes. Absolutely right. Um, we should always realize, though, when we are talking about human patients with blind sight, all except one of them is only blind in half their visual field, because this occurs usually as a result of a stroke or something, and it damages half the left or the right hemisphere of the brain, which leaves sight intact on the other side. So these patients uh, uh, have a comparison. They have half the field in which they have visual sensations and the other half in which they don't. So what they, what they certainly, what strikes them is the absence of sensation in the blind field. Um, and I think that's why they have always insisted there's nothing there in the blind blind field. We, there's just one patient, well he's not, has been studied for a few years now, he's called TN, who has damage to both sides of the visual cortex, rather like the monkey. Um, and uh, he behaves very much like like Helen. He can uh, he can walk through a room full of obstacles, for example, and um, uh, and avoid obstacles uh, all the while insisting that he's not seeing them. Um, but he's fully aware that he has this ability now. So he has this kind of cognitive consciousness of vision. I'm glad you've come back to this again and again because I think it's partly in my own thinking I've realised that the way to understand this is to make this critical division between cognition and phenomenal awareness. And to say that they're separate in, one is a secondary development in evolution and that in the animal kingdom, the world is going to divide between those, those which are just cognitively conscious and those which in addition are sentient. Um, But that's what many people have find hard to accept because they'd always thought of it the other way around, that sentience was primitive uh, and uh, cognitive consciousness came later on. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Dharamsala uh, with the Dalai Lama. It's where he has his monastery and he he convened a workshop on animal consciousness. And it was very congenial. We have a very great time. the Buddhist monks are amazingly astute and on the ball about these issues, but the, there was a bottom line. They wanted consciousness, they call it gross consciousness, to go all the way down in the animal kingdom, and gross consciousness for them means sense, sensory experience, as against subtle consciousness, which means a whole lot of highfalutin ideas built on, on on the mind and thinking and so on. So, in a way, they were they were denigrating. What I think is the most important aspect of consciousness, and the most recent and sophisticated development, calling it gross consciousness, whereas uh, what they think of as subtle consciousness, I think, is much more widely present in in animals and babies and things. Um, so we, we we didn't exactly agree on those issues. Um, the Rad Dalai Lama himself would. It was extraordinary interacting with him. He's very old, no, not very old, he's not much older than me, I should say. But anyway, he's 87 years old and he's and he's uh, he tends to waffle a bit, but you can see his eyes, eyes light up at these discussions. Um, and extraordinarily for a religious leader, he has said, I think he's even written it down somewhere, that if science should ever prove any Buddhist tenets of Buddhist philosophy wrong, then he would make certain that Buddhism changed its mind about those issues. <laughs> um, don't hear the Pope saying that kind of thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Very important statement. So, if we can pin down the purpose of each sensation, and if we can pin down that how this sensation emerges in the brain, that can help us to study phenomenal consciousness?
1: It's Well, yes, I, the, nat, the brain, under the guidance of natural selection, has come up with uh, an internal set of circuits which generate something, a text, I've referred to that earlier yeah. on, which we then read as having phenomenal properties. <clears throat> it comes back, this idea of a text, I should say, I want to take, go back further. I think sensations arose from the very start as a kind of text. The way we, our very primitive ancestors uh, got to know what was happening at their sense organs was by reading their own response to it. Before animals felt anything, they were doing things. So they would make a wriggle of acceptance or rejection to a stimulus arriving at the body. and more and more sophisticated responses to different kinds of sensory stimuli. But to begin with, they didn't know what it was they were responding to. So they weren't representing sensations, they weren't representing stimuli. My my theory of how this originated in evolution is that natural selection hit on a rather clever trick. If an animal's doing something about sensations, then what it's doing represents what the sensation means to it. Um, and it can then learn what the sensation means by monitoring its own response, by by uh, taking, by actually reading its own response to the stimulus. So from the very beginning, I think the brain was, in a sense, it had a text there which was going to be interpreted as sensation. And initially, it was a motor response. Um, this idea, by the way, is uh, is quite familiar in neurophysiology, the idea of efferent re- of, of of making an efferent copy of your own motor actions and reading it in order to understand uh, what that. Is what that means about the stimulus actually has been around for quite some time, but people haven't taken it seriously as the basis for the whole of what I, of sensation as I see it. So anyway, um, sensation began like that. And then uh, what happened was that this motor response, I give it a name. I, sorry for the new names in my book, but I think I, sometimes we need them. I call the motor response sentition, something between uh, uh, volition and sensation. We, first, we do sensations before we feel them. Um, and anyway, sentition, I think, came to be elaborated in these remarkable ways uh, to create feedback loops and attractor states and so on. And I spell out, a you know, it's 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 a bit of a just so story. But on the other hand, if people say, you know, what's your theory of consciousness, then I feel obliged to deliver something even if it's only a trial and what i think is that the kind of theory which i present as a physiological theory is at least a proof in principle of how it could be done a machine or animal designed on the principles which i laid down out in my book would be conscious in the ways which we uh, uh, assume that uh, which we recognize as what it's like to be conscious in ourselves That, of course, means that if we could duplicate those circuits in a non-living creature, we'd also be producing a creature which would have phenomenal experiences of those kinds. But that's not going to happen unless we go to considerable lengths to duplicate those circuits. And no one at the moment is, of course, attempting to do that. No one working on artificial consciousness is interested in phenomenal consciousness and the quality of sensations. Well, they are interested, but they're not building it in. Um, they're assuming the people who write about sentience, sentient AI, assuming it just emerges. Um, but they, as yet, they haven't found any good reason, or haven't been funded to to actually build phenomenal consciousnesses in. Now, you might, perhaps you're about to ask me, I'm going to, I keep on answering your questions before you've asked them. Um, why would somebody want to build a sentient machine, a sentient robot, if they <laughs> were to. Um,
0: Go ahead, please. Yes.
1: Well, I hope my answers have paved the way to, already have paved the way to, to my own answer to that is, we would need to build a sentient robot if we needed to interact with it on the level we interact with human beings, if we needed to be able to read its mind, most importantly, if we were to hope that it would read our minds because it was projecting its own experience into us. So <clears throat> that would become, be the point at which there would be real payoff, a um, <coughs> real advantage to having machines which had this kind of inner experience, which they could then use as a model for what it's like to be other machines, or what it's like to be a human being for that matter. And this might become important both if, in terms of making them more agreeable companions To us because sentient robots would be rather uh, much easier to interact with, potentially more dangerous too, more manipulative. Um, But also, if we're going to send out these robots to do our job exploring the universe, and of course, we probably are going to do that, robots are going to be able to go to places where humans can't possibly go to explore the far reaches of the universe and uh, discover all the wonders which may be out there, including possibly other robotic or, or living life. We are going to have to send out emissaries on our behalf. They're going to have to be very clever, very intelligent, very observant, all the things which already robots can be, but they're also going to have to have a reason for being there. They're going to be so clever that if they don't, they're going to think, well, you know, what's this about? What's the point of it all, sending back this information back to these earthlings? Why? Uh, What's my role in this? Why do I matter? Um, Why should I continue? And Why should I in particular want to create a colony of robots like myself who are going to have the same kind of aspirations? So I think that in order to give robots a reason to live, One very effective thing to do, which is to take a leaf out of nature's book and give them phenomenal consciousness. Whether we'll ever do that, I don't know.
0: Uh, You have already uh, answered my two questions that I wanted to ask, so that's perfectly fine, as long as our listeners are getting the information that I think they should get. Perhaps a naive comment here? Because the concepts that you describe in the book and in your research, they are not easy to understand. So if it's a naive question, please excuse me for that. When we were talking about that these sensations emerge in the brain as firing of neurons and electric signals moving from one neuron to another, you use the analogy that maybe that is the text. And then we interpret it as a certain sensation. My question here is if those patterns are emerging in the brain. What do you mean by the word we here? Who is we?
1: Well, we are, we are the self, the cognitive self. Uh, the global workspace which I described has a central processing unit which has access to this information. It's like the CPU of your computer um, and basically its job is to integrate this stuff and to make sure it stays on track and to avoid you know, ambiguities and clashes of, of uh, in the in the output and so on and so on. So, the self is this central processor. It's also in humans. The part of our self which controls language. Um, so. The self is a linguistic self in us. Dan Dennett's made a very great deal of this, and I think he does it very well. He, um, and he 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 asks actually that very question. Why is who is this self who is aware of our states of mind who introspects? And he says, Well, it's the language organ. Why is that true? Because that's the role of the language organ. It is to it is to understand in terms of ideas, what's, what's going on inside our minds. Dennett goes farther, further than me because he does make it specifically linguistic. He thinks that consciousness couldn't exist without language, at least a certain level of consciousness. He thinks that dogs can't be conscious in the way we are because they don't have language. I don't. I think there are other forms of interpretation, representation, which are semi-like language, but don't actually involve words and linguistic structures. But um, you are asking the crucial question, who is the I? Um, and the I the I is, for me at the moment, the, my I is whoever is controlling my interaction with you. My I is the one who is both taking in your words, Responsible for producing my words, for reflecting on what these words are about, all the time, of course, reminding myself of experiences and so on, which I've had in the past, which I remember. Um, it's not such a puzzle to see how this kind of information processing works. We do already. It's what we do in, in developing uh, uh, robots which have to have a purpose, which have to have a single they have to be single-minded. In what they do, um, so we know what happens when humans aren't single-minded. Uh, it leads to pathology, um, and that's of course been one of the uh, important developments in the organisation of the mind. Is that it tends to cohere around one narrative, one self. Uh, when people have two or more selves, um, they get into trouble.
0: Nick, you have already answered my question about uh, uh, machines becoming uh, sentient just to recap few things and then you can correct me if i'm recapping them incorrectly and to ask a further question so you are saying that this view that if suddenly we have a lot of processing power sentience will emerge is is not there you will have to build something mm-hmm. that will create that sentience there so mm-hmm. that's that's what you uh, that's yeah. my understanding of what you said yes okay so then my next question is that Should we actually then aim to build sentient machines or should we just say that, okay, leave this thing alone and just don't do this? (laughs) Well,
1: we've sort of touched on on that. Um, My answer is that at the moment, I don't see any reason to do it. But there could come a time when we want to interact with machines at a human level to incorporate them into what I call the society of selves at which point we might indeed want to give them inner experience which parallels ours it would have to be the real thing or else it's not going to we're not going to make the right kind of judgments about what they're thinking um, and nor will they make the right judgments about us so it would require a kind of duplication of the of the circuits which have evolved naturally in human brains and it shouldn't be beyond the wit of human engineers to do this Um, uh, I don't think we're going to do it soon and certainly no one has even begun to think about doing it yet, partly of course because the engineers who work in artificial intelligence haven't taken on board the kind of distinctions which I'm making Um, but it's also because we haven't seen the reason and we haven't seen the 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 uh, the reason for funding research to do this so maybe we will maybe the military which is usually responsible for for, for the handling the purse strings will say oh yeah sentient missiles that could be the next thing couldn't it um and of course we we already have drones working in groups um watching presumably interacting with each other Maybe those drones are going to need to do psychology, understand the behavior of other drones. Maybe there will be reason to make give them a theory of mind. Um, but not yet, at any rate. I've speculated, though, about another reason why we must and we, 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 we can and must uh, create artificial sentience at some point. And that's because of the future of the universe. I think that sentience, phenomenal consciousness, is the most wonderful, and extraordinary culmination of natural selection. Uh, It is the jewel in the crown of biological evolution. So far as we know, it's come about through a series of lucky accidents. And it's very likely that it's only occurred here on planet Earth. I know uh, astronomers think that Everything has occurred so many times across an infinite universe that nothing is unique. But that's actually a false statistical argument. I think that sentence may be unique to life on Earth, not just to humans, but to perhaps all mammals and birds and humans. Um, but life on Earth is not going to survive ever. And it may not survive even as long as we hoped it would a few hundred years ago. I mean, people assume the, the Earth has a few more... Uh, Million billion years to go, but it may not have. We could destroy it, Um, and we were. uh, I mean, it's more than a than than a minimal risk now. the 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 atomic clock on the bulletin of the atomic scientists is set at, I think, less than one minute to zero now. Um, People are very worried about the end possibility. We might end life on Earth if we did that, and with that destroyed phenomenal consciousness, this wonderful discovery of nature, um, it might mean that it would never be recreated in the future of the universe, however infinite it is. So I'd rather like to see us on make a program, not yet, but soon enough, in which we decide to seed the universe with phenomenal consciousness, just to make sure it carries on going.
0: Nick, we are discussing your book, Sentience, The Invention of Consciousness. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in the book. Obviously, there is much more in the book. However, is there anything else that you think we should touch upon before we close this discussion?
1: Uh, Probably, One thing we might say for potential readers is we've talked about a lot of quite difficult intellectual subjects here. I've tried to make my book relatively easy to read, and that's partly because I've used a fair amount of autobiography in order to introduce these topics. I describe how they entered my thinking and the kind of work I was involved with um, in coming to these ideas, uh, focusing, for example, on blind sight, but also, for example, on my discovery of the idea of natural psychology through doing field work with gorillas with Diane Fossey in Rwanda. So there's a fair, in the, in this book there's a fair amount of of, of a, few, a few stories to lighten it, um, but some difficult work as well. Um, so. You have to take the rough with the smooth. But I think it's, um, I also, of course, at, at the second part of the book, I do go on to discussing what kind of evidence we might look for in animals. Um, and then I discuss quite a lot of strange and interesting examples of animal behaviour. I centre it around the animal I know best in my life, which is a black poodle called Bernie. Um, and He features quite a lot in, in my speculations about about sentience in dogs, so it's it's a it's a difficult read, but I but I, uh, but but I th- worthwhile, I would say.
0: Professor Nicholas Humphrey, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps.
1: And a great great pleasure for me too, Asim. Thank you.
0: Thank you, and goodbye.